Are you fluent in Python, or do you speak the language with an accent? Python's ease of learning can also lead to non-Pythonic patterns for even experienced developers. Luciano Romalo is here to give us a deeper understanding of this language we love. It's episode number 24, recorded Thursday, August 6, 2015. I'm a developer. In many senses of the word, cause I make these applications, but I also use these verbs to make this music. I construct it line by line, just like when I'm coding another software design. In both cases, it's about design patterns. Anyone can get the job done, it's the execution that matters. I have many interests, sometimes conflict. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Hired and CodeChip. Thank them for supporting the show on Twitter via at hired underscore HQ and at CodeChip. Before we get to the conversation with Luciano, he generously agreed to give away an electronic copy of his book, Fluent Python. All you have to do to be eligible to win is to be a friend of the show. Visit talkpython.fm Choose friend of the show in the nav bar and sign up. Now let me introduce Luciano. Luciano Romalo is the author of Fluent Python. Romalo was a web developer before the Netscape IPO in 1995 and switched from Perl to Java and finally to Python in 1998. Since then, he's worked on some of the largest news portals in Brazil using Python. He's taught Python web development in the Brazilian media, banking, and government sectors. He's spoken multiple times at OSCON, PyCon, Python Brazil, FISL, and RuPy. Romalo is a fellow at the Python Software Foundation and a co-founder at the Garoa Hacker Club, the first hackerspace in Brazil. Finally, he's the managing partner at python.pro.br, a Python training company. Luciano, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book, Fluent Python. Yeah, I'm excited about about it too. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. You've been working on it for a while. Uh, before we get into talking about your book, which is really an amazing book, I'll have more to say on that in a minute. Thanks. You're welcome. Let's talk about how you got started into programming and Python at all. Like, You, you know so much, I can tell from your book, uh, but at some point you had to start at the beginning, like we all do, right? Where did you, where yeah. did you get started? Okay. Now, uh, I'm 51 years old, so when I was a teenager... In Brazil, there were no microcomputers, but I got a hand on a on a programmable calculator, a TA58, and I I learned to program by programming it. And actually, my first interesting program was a port of a game from the HP25 calculator to the TI59. It was the the lunar landing game that was famous. Oh, that was a great the, game. Yeah, so that was my first. Uh, significant program. And then I was an exchange student in, in 81 in the U.S. I, I lived in, in little Harrisburg, Illinois, population 10,000. And there I, I got, uh, there were in the library, in the school, there were a few Apple II computers that had just arrived when I arrived and nobody knew how to use them. Uh, the teachers who were supposed to teach about them didn't, hadn't yet taken the course to do it. So they were basically free for anyone to do whatever they wanted. And I learned, I taught myself basic programming in them. Anyway, so that's, that's a long time. And then I, I went through lots of languages after basic Pascal and, uh, Pascal was one of the most important ones for me. 
and then Delphi and then uh, Visual Basic and uh, I studied a little bit of small talk. And then when the web started here in Brazil, again, we had a, a kind of a different situation because there was uh, all telecom companies in Brazil were state-owned at that time. Later they were privatized, but they were state-owned in, in 94. And so I was hired by a large publishing company here to start uh, developing their strategy for online. And I learned, I taught myself pro programming because everybody did everything on the web that was automated using Perl at the time, right? Right. And I, I, I loved Perl. I thought it was awesome. Uh, but I also found it, well, I, I'm saying, I, I just said I love it, but I loved it, but I also hated it at the same time because... <laughs> It was very powerful and quick, but it was also full of traps, and uh, it was difficult to read afterwards and so on. Then I tried Java, and uh, I, I probably I probably was one of the first people in Brazil to do server-side Java, because when Java was first released, uh, Sun was uh, trying to market it as a tool for client-side programming, right, with the applets and so on. It, Took a while for them to realize that server side was was where Java was going to thrive, but I didn't enjoy the verbosity of Java. I liked the fact that it was really object oriented, which Perl was not at the time, but it was too verbose. And then after a while, I went back to Perl again, and Perl had uh, acquired object oriented uh, features in around Perl five, and then something happened. Uh, as the Perl community was discussing how to do things in a dynamic language, but also in an object-oriented way, they kept they kept uh, repeating the sentence. Here's how they do it in Python. In Python, this is like that, and that's how I first heard of Python. It was uh, discussions on the Perl mailing list about how about how to do things in an object-oriented way, but in a language that was a scripting language, in a dynamic language. So after reading mentions of Python a few times, I decided to go study it, and then I read the tutorial, which was shorter at the time than it is now, and I just fell in love immediately, because it, for me, uh, it had the best features of Python, of Java, and Perl. It was really object-oriented with an object-oriented uh, standard library like Java and uh, had exceptions and other things that I liked about Java, but was not verbose. So it was, uh, you know, very uh, concise and to the point and, uh, and agile like Perl. And so it was for me the combination of the best features of both both languages, and then I basically never looked back. <laughs> that's a great that's a great story. <laughs> I think we've all had those sorts of feelings about some of our first programming languages. We love them because we really got into programming, but you know they're <laughs> they're not yeah. necessarily the best. So you yeah, have those exactly. warts as well, right? <laughs> exactly. But Python's Python's where you've sort of settled into. I can tell you've been doing it for a long time from your book. Yeah, so I started uh, doing it uh, in 98. That was when I found the, the tutorial that I mentioned. And then I immediately pitched a, a Python solution to a client at the time for a, on, an online news site. And then uh, I discovered uh, Zoop, which was just then uh, released as open source. And uh, I started using it like a couple of weeks after it was released as open source and 
And then we, a few, a couple of months later, we actually launched in Brazil a, a new site that was based on Zope, and it was one of the first big uh, Zope uh, cases around the world. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, and it, so I, I owe a lot to Zope. I don't use Zope anymore these days, but I owe I, I owe a lot to it because it was because of Zope that I was able to deliver the kinds of products that I that the clients were looking uh, for me to deliver, like. Uh, uh, Content management systems, and I so I was able to 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 get paid for writing Python pretty early, at least in the context of Brazil since '98. That's a great yeah. feeling, right? You yeah, find yeah, this exactly. thing you love, and wow, people pay me to do it. That, that's really exactly exactly. It's yeah. a good time to be a programmer, indeed. So yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about your book. The title is Fluent Python, and it's coming out under uh, being published by O'Reilly, and it's coming out. I, I think September fourth is what Amazon.com tells me. Anyway, is that right? Yeah, to be honest, I don't know exactly when the print book is going to come out because different pages that I look at give different dates. I've seen August, I've seen September, and I've seen October all in the last two weeks. Amazing. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but soon, right? Pretty soon. Just about the same time that this podcast comes out, I think, should be the time that the book is released. Wow, that's excellent. But the, but let me say the the ebook is is now uh, com, uh, complete in the final form. So people who who buy the ebook or or who have bought it previously can now up, uh, download the the final version of you know first edition, first revision. And it's also available from from Amazon.com for the Kindle in the final form. So what, we are only waiting for the print book at this time. Right. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, I think having the electronic book works really well. I was reading it on my Kindle and it on my Kindle paper white, and it it was really nice. You know the the code the the code samples came through really well. Like sometimes that doesn't work so well. Um, wow, that's cool. Nice to know. Yeah, yeah, it came out really, really well. And you know, so I've only. I only had the book for a few days, so I've only been able to read maybe the first five chapters. Uh-huh. But my impression of the first five chapters, if if it keeps going like this, I'm sure it does, is this book is a masterpiece. It is really, really good. Well, thank you very much. I think it's going to mm-hmm. go down as a classic book in the Python community. Really. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm not just saying that because you're on the show, but I, I was reading it, and um, it's a little hard for me to put in in words i think for people to really understand but it it seemed like everything that you covered and we'll talk a bit more about that but it seemed like every uh, thing you covered i'm kind of like i mostly know this oh wait there's this like really cool piece of information or motivation that i was never really aware of and just underneath the underneath the surface of the knowledge that i do have right and so and that was like all the time happening to me while I was reading your book. And so I, I think it's a great contribution. Thank you. Yeah. So let's, let me read a, a quick quote right from the beginning to give people a sense of, I think, what you're going for with this book. So in the introduction or one of the first chapters, you say, Python is, easy to, is an easy-to-learn, powerful programming language. Those are the first words of the official Python tutorial That's true, but there's a catch. Because the language is so easy to learn and put to use, many practicing Python programmers leverage only a fraction of its powerful features. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of sum up the the problem you're trying to solve with this book? Exactly, and that's why I called it Fluent Python. You know, as as somebody who is fluent in two languages, in Portuguese and English, and that knows how difficult it is to become fluent in a language, because... It's easy to become fluent in the language in your native language, right? You 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 grow with it, and that's 
basically people even don't even notice. But getting fluent in another language is is, is hard. And so I I've been teaching Python to uh, lots of people. When I had a company, we, whenever we hired people, we never could hire people that knew Python because nobody knew Python at the time. So I, I, we, we hired people who knew Java and then taught them Python. But I also worked as a, a, a Python instructor, and, and that's what I do now these days. So I realized that this thing that I that I say over there, that uh, the language is easy to use, is practical, so people start solving real problems real fast. But that means that sometimes they are already using it for several years and don't know uh, why some things are the way they are. And another thing that, that I say right after that in the second paragraph is that uh, when you're when you're looking when you're learning a new language, you you look for things that are familiar to you. Like for instance, hmm, maybe this language probably this language has a way to use an, a regular expression. Let's see how how that works. But if there's something in the language that is uh, not matched by something that you know from another language, like, for instance, the concept of generators that many languages don't have, then you're unlikely to go look for it, right? Because you don't even know the thing exists. Another, a simpler example than generators is uh, like tuple unpacking. It's just a nice synthetic sugar. But if you've never seen that in a language, you won't look for it, and maybe you're gonna spend years working with Python without ever using it. But it's a really nice thing to use because it makes code more readable, even safer in some ways. Python uh, tuple unpacking has this characteristic because it, it it actually forces right the interpreter to count the number of items. So if there is one more or one less, or an error will be raised. So it's a very nice feature, but it's something that people who come from other languages may never use because they won't think about it. Right. If you came from something like C-sharp, for example, that doesn't have this concept of tuple unpacking, and so you just wouldn't even – you might not ever find it. And that's that, that, that kind of gets at the broader if, issue or concept of Pythonic versus non-Pythonic code, yes. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, totally. it, it's pretty easy to come over to Python and learn it really quickly so that you can do the same thing that you do. But it's not always the best, is it? Some of your mental models don't really carry carry over so well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's very it's, it's, it's Of course, it's a very elusive thing to define uh, what is Pythonic. I, I, I actually mentioned it several times in the book and tried to address it in the afterwards. But basically, I... Just send people uh, send people links to uh, other people that I respect a lot in the Python community who have attempted to define it like directly. Right. But <laughs> it's like it's a, but a good definition which doesn't really explain what is Pythonic is to say it's idiomatic Python, right? Right. But okay, but so what is idiomatic Python? <laughs> right. It's 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 hard to define. Yeah, I think your best bet is to show a bunch of people of example, uh, show people a yes. bunch of examples. Say all of these things are Pythonic, all of these things are not Pythonic because yeah. they carry over concepts that work well in other languages, but are not the proper way to do them here. And once you get enough experience of going bad example, good example, then you kind of get this sense, like almost a smell for like. Yeah, it seems like this is right. It seems like that's not right. But it's very hard to be very concrete, you know. Exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. I tried to do that in the book, and, and, and actually what I, a decision that I made early on was to be as Pythonic as I could in the, in the program examples, even when being Pythonic might not have uh, provided the clearest source code for, from something that's not familiar with the language. You know, like for instance, uh, in, right in the first example in the book, I use uh, name it tuple. Right. Yep. And then I, I, I give it just like, you know, a couple of sentences to explain. It's probably not enough if, if the person has never seen it, but it's actually something useful that I start using all over the book. And, and if, if that picks up the person's curiosity and then, then that person can go and look for it. But so that's, this is what I decided. Like, for instance, before I actually have a chapter that formally discusses generated expressions, I used them in the book whenever it was natural to to do so, even before I actually cover it. Because of what I just said, you know, I wanted to write idiomatic Python whenever I could, even if that made the... Because the thing is, when you're speaking to a native speaker of English, for example, the person won't uh, dumb down uh, his or her speech for you, right? That's right. And that's that's cool. Sometimes maybe you don't understand everything, but you're catching, you know, though there's something new about the way this person is expressing herself, and then you're gonna try and find out what what that means. But you know, if 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 you ever always talk to people that spoke English. Yeah, easy English. You would only learn easy English and not real English, fluent you would, English. You wouldn't right? get that chance to grow into a fluent speaker, kind of like you said. Exactly. So exactly. your example with the name Tuple uh, kind of hits on the point that I was talking about. Like, I, I've used name Tuples. I'm familiar with them. I think they're great. But, you know, you go a little bit deeper and you're like, hey, it's really cool to use a name Tuple because the actual dictionary that stores the attributes is stored in the class object, which is a singleton in the runtime, not in the individual instances. So storage is actually cheaper than regular custom classes. Yes. So mm-hmm. if all you want to have is just a bunch of pieces of data that have names in an object, but not functionality, maybe, maybe you should use these name tuples. This episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired is a two-sided, curated marketplace that connects the world's knowledge workers to the best opportunities. Each offer you receive has salary and equity presented right up front, and you can view the offers to accept or reject them before you even talk to the company. Typically, candidates receive five or more offers in just the first week, and there are no obligations, ever. Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Well, did I mention there's a signing bonus? Everyone who accepts a job from Hired gets a $2,000 signing bonus. And as Talk Python listeners, it gets way sweeter. Use the link hired.com slash talkpython to me, and Hired will double the signing bonus to $4,000. Opportunities knocking. Visit hired.com slash talkpython to me and answer the call. Exactly. Yeah. And another thing, they are, because they are inexpensive, you can use it and they are inexpensive and they are completely compat- compatible with, with tuples, right? You can unpack them, you can iterate over the items and so on. So for instance, 
Whenever you need to return more than one value from a function, I recommend you return a name tuple because it will make, uh, for instance, understanding what the function does easier because there's going to be the definition of this name tuple. If the person is trying the is looking at the result of the function in the console or in the debugger, the person is going to actually see the names of the parts of the tuple that the function is returning. So this is a recommendation. Like for instance, if you're going to return more than one value from a function, usually people do it with a tuple, and that's fine. But with the name of tuple is even better, and it's cheap, like you said, because of the way it's implemented. It doesn't require... Uh, more memory. Yeah, you don't have to store all the keys, copies of the keys for every instance, right? Like you would with regular uh, classes or objects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, when those come back, if you're unsure what's coming back from that method, you could print it out and you get a nice listing of actually not just what's in there, but the, the meaning of them by the name. Exactly. And, exactly. Or if you're mm-hmm. in a debugger like PyCharm, you could probably hover over it and actually see it pop up exactly. in the watch window. Exactly. Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that you said you used uh, in your book is something called doc test to check the code and the console listings. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that's something that I think was created by uh, by by the people in the Zope community, uh, and uh, and it's no no. So in the Zope community, this was always very big. So the idea, the main idea of doc test is to make sure that whatever code snippets appear. In a, in a, in documentation, uh, particularly, uh, listings of console sessions, uh, demonstrating stuff that those actually match the behavior of the program, uh, at, at that time. So this was the, the starting point for, for doc tests. In the Zoop community, uh, which is still active, there's a lot of development going on still in Zoop. There's a lot of also, uh, Files that are testing files that are not strict, strictly documentation that are written in the doc test format, because it's really easy to. I find it ex- excellent to when I when I have to design a new API, because I it's sort of a BDD thing, you know. Uh, you 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 start typing those uh, fake console sessions when you're where you're thinking how it would feel to interact with this API. And then the result would, be, would look like that and so on. And then you, uh, it, it's, it's really good to do TDD uh, because you write a, f- a couple of stanzas of doc test and then you implement the, the code that makes it pass and so on and, go, and, on, and on and on. You know, the whole idea of trying to envision what your API looks like from the outside and then implement it, it generates much cleaner uh, exactly. APIs in the end. And this is, you know, one flavor of that, right? That's cool. Yeah. One thing, though, I have to say about doc test is that after a while, you'd realize there are some limitations to it. And even uh, even recently, like last week, I, was, uh, I had to come out with a difficult solution to an algorithm problem. And I, I started implementing some tests using doc tests. But then, uh, for instance, doc test doesn't let you easily run just one part of the test. It, it runs everything from top to down. And sometimes when you're, when you're debugging, it's useful to be able to run just a specific part. A- anyway, the, the unit testing frameworks, not only unit tests, but PyTest, which is my favorite, 
are much more powerful than, than, than doc tests. And they can actually also run doc tests. So it's a, there is a way to integrate them. So you can have, so the, 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 I think the best idea these days is to really use doc test, doc test just for the documentation and just the straight, straightforward cases, not corner cases, not weird outcomes, not testing whether, uh, an exception is raised or not. Because although all of that can be done in doc tests, in the end it come, it becomes difficult to maintain the tests. Right. Maybe it's better done in PyTest, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. I use, I use PyTest. I prefer, it much better than unit test because I think unit test has a very strong Java flavor of forcing you to do everything inside classes. Mm-hmm. And I much prefer the syntax that PyTest introduced and the nose also supports, but I prefer Py.test of having tests as functions. And it, you can create classes if you want, but you can also have module level thing. It's mu- it's, it's, I, I prefer the syntax. Yeah, cool. So one of the very first things that you talk about in your book is the Python data model. And you talk about uh, it's sort of the foundation for making your own classes fit this Pythonic programming model. And you have a quote in there. It's something like the, the you know, talking about this data model or just you know, learning about it is so the, the tip of the iceberg. So the iceberg is called the Python data model, and it describes the API that you can use to make your own objects play well with the most idiomatic language features. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you think people are uh, people who are sort of come to Python from other languages, you know, ones that uh, add functionality to their classes very much by overriding virtual methods and those kinds of things, sort of miss out on some of the the Python data model, like under under init or you know the iter or str methods, things like that. Yeah, for instance, uh, this is something that happened to me many years ago when I developed the 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 French deck, the card deck example that I use in that chapter. Um, so many years ago when I had the idea of, of implementing that, uh, so I was, um, the idea was to show how easy it was to create a, 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 a new class that behaves like a, a sequence, right? So you under, you implement it under len and you imp- implement it under get item and basically you're done. But then something really interesting happened because I was implementing, the idea was to implement a card deck, right? So what is an obvious thing you want to do with a card deck is to shuffle it, right? Right. So the first time that I created this example, I actually had a a method called shuffle, which was not a special method, was not done there shuffle, it was just shuffle, right? So the idea was, so you create, you have this card deck and you can look at the cards and you can call the shuffle method and see the cards shuffle. Okay. But then, a few weeks after that, uh, I realized that when I looked back at the example giving a class, I said, wait, wait a minute. Uh, there is already a shuffle uh, function in the random module that shuffles any mutable sequence that you give it. So it actually doesn't make sense to, to implement the shuffle if, if the whole point of my exercise was to show how easy it was to create a sequence, even if the sequence represented a card deck, a very specific domain specific thing. It didn't make sense for me to implement a, sh- uh, a sh- my own shuffle method because there was already a shuffle method and it is designed to work with uh, mutable sequences. 
Right. And it's already tested, probably optimized, all that kind of stuff, right? Exactly. So then uh, that was an insight for me that uh, of, of an advantage of being Pythonic is the fact that when you are Pythonic, your objects be- suddenly become more compatible with things that are already out there in, on the, in the standard library and in other packages that you can download from PyPI. Yeah, I think this is a lesson that uh, people uh, need to learn because, uh, in, in, I, for instance, I don't know in Java, I don't know about C sharp. I, I studied Java a lot for a while, and I even uh, today sometimes I spend sometimes every year I try and sit sit down and read something about Java because I get a lot of of clients in my course that are that studied Java before and is, is useful to make uh, analogies. But, for instance, a big advantage of Python over Java is the fact that we have these operators that are more generic, like, for instance, the square bracket operator, which is the operator for to get an item or to set an item, right? And they don't have that in Java. That, that, that operator in Java is a magical thing that only works with the uh, primitive arrays. Anything else? You have to use some other, uh, you know, you have to use method syntax. Also, these days I'm studying Go, the Go language, and I, I really like it very much. But one of the things that, that I most dislike about it is the fact that it has, it follows this Java philosophy of having some built-in data structures that are magical, and you cannot create your own data structures that emulate them precisely. Like, for instance, uh, the, uh, in, in Go, there's a way to, you can iterate over, over some primitive types like maps and arrays and uh, slices, but you cannot create your own type that is iterable using the for range construct of the language. Right. That's too bad. Unlike the for yeah, exactly. loop in Python, which is exactly. totally so, accessible. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Java, uh, I think Python is actually better than most languages in the, in this regard of, of enabling you to create structures that behave exactly like the, the most fundamental data structures in the language. And the way to accomplish that is through the data model. So I think it's very nice to have that documented and exposed. And I, I wanted to give it more visibility. So that's why I started the first chapter with that. Even if in the following chapters, my strategy then is to say, okay, but let's look at what is already implemented in Python. Because I didn't want people to go out re-implementing new sequence types when there's, when maybe they don't even leverage everything that the built-in sequence types uh, can offer, right? Right. I think that's a good point. Uh, People coming from other languages, they don't necessarily know what's available. So they'll find themselves re-implementing stuff. A really, yeah, a really simple example would be I would like to randomly get an item out of a list. So I might import the random module, get a random index based on the (laughs) length, and then go index it out. Or you could just do random.choice. Oh, I didn't know random.choice exists. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you talk about around the Python data model is the len method. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being such an object oriented language, I always felt that it should be, you know, collection.len or length or something like that, maybe even as a property. And this sort of special function Mm -hmm. on the outside of the classes seemed a little bit odd. But you had a a good uh, conversation around that in there. You want to elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, So that that is also something that bothered me for a while. 
Uh, of course, you get used to it because it's really easy to get used to it and it's really easy to type. It's actually one of the arguments that Guido uses to defend that decision is that it's easier to type than having a dot. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, you, if it was a method call, you would have to write like, you know, x dot len open close paren, mm-hmm. right? So that's, there's one dot uh, extra there. And it's also something, and, and here's another thing that's funny, because uh, it's a, I think it's of the human nature. When people come to learn a new language, sometimes they are, they are not uh, pleased. Sometimes their boss told them to learn it, right? And, and then uh, for a, some, some people try to resist by, by pointing out, you know, things that they don't like or things that they think are inconsistent. And uh, bugs, although bugs are extremely difficult for a beginner to find in Python. I've never seen a beginner find a bug, a bug in Python. Every, every time a beginner thinks... I've, I've seen them write bugs. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but most of the time, and, and in my life, every time I've seen a beginner complain about a Python bug in a mailing list, it was invariably because the person didn't understand what was actually, exactly was going That's on. That's right. It was not a real bug. But anyway, here about inconsistencies. So they say, ah, this is inconsistent because... It should be spelled as a as a as a method. Okay, now let's think about how this problem is solved in Java. In Java, there is actually an inconsistency because there is the, the in the array uh, type there is like a, a len as it a property as it were is actually a, a, a field like a public field that you read. So you don't you just write uh, my array dot length without parentheses. And that's how you get the length of the array, because that Java is just basically giving you the the value that's it, it's internally stored in a structure that represents the array. So that's very cheap, and that's how they do it. And it's important to to be, to be cheap because it's a very common operation. Then for other types that don't have this structure, uh, there's a method called length. But also in the Java API, there are other classes that could perfectly have methods named length, but also but have methods named size. Size or count or something, yeah. Yeah, so there's at least three different ways that are common uh, in, in, in Java code to, to do the same thing. And in Python, we have only one way, is the len of the thing, called as a function. And, I th- and so, first of all, it's more consistent. The second thing is, it's pragmatic because the way it works is if you say len of x and x is a built-in type, this built-in type, if this, if the, if the built-in type has, has many elements, there's actually a struct, uh, I, I forgot the name, but it's spelled out in the book. There's actually a C struct that represents the type and it has a field that has the count of the numbers of the number of items. So that's the same thing that Java does except that it doesn't expose a special field, but uses the len function. So the len function, the implementation of the len function in the Python interpreter does that. It just goes to look at, if there's is a built-in type and it's a multi-valued built-in type, then return the value of this field in the struct. So that's very cheap, and it's actually faster than uh, doing the resolution of an attribute, right? So because if you had to write x.length, this dot requires some advanced machinery in Python because of the dynamic nature of Python is well, a price we pay for this all this dynamic behavior is that the dot operator is kind of expensive. Right. 
basically a dictionary lookup, and then the function calls themselves are also kind of expensive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah, and it's uh, it's more expensive than a than a dictionary lookup because there's all all, all that machinery that I explain later in the book. Basically, in the last part of the book, the metaprogramming part is where I explain actually the, the, the how descriptors work. And descriptors, the infrastructure below properties, but also below another thing that's really, really fundamental that everybody uses in Python, which are methods. Because uh, what makes a method behave as a method, as an instance method, as a bound method, or as a unbound method, has to do with the way the descriptor mechanisms uh, uh, resolves the the dot operator, so it's, it's an expensive thing. So by 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 making it uh, be written as len uh, paren x close paren, the interpreter can resolve this much faster. And then, if the structure is not a built-in structure, then uh, the interpreter falls back to looking up, and then there's the the, the, the cost of the attributes look up, but it will look up uh, the Dunderland method. So I think this is actually very elegant because in the end, the user interface in, uh, is the, always the same, is always len of X, and uh, but it allows, but it gives us creators of APIs a way to provide uh, a consistent interface, a, a, an interface that's consistent with the built-in method, with the built-in types, while at the same time ensuring that the built-in types have the fastest possible performance for doing this operation, which is crucial, right? Yeah. It's often something that done in, in loops, right? And you want, you want to optimize everything that's done in a loop. So getting the lane of something is important to be fast. This episode is brought to you by CodeShip. CodeShip has launched organizations, create teams, set permissions for specific team members, and improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflow. Maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and teams with CodeShip's new organizations plan. And as TalkPython listeners, you can save 20% off any premium plan for the next three months. Just use the code TALKPYTHON, all caps, no spaces. Check them out at CodeShip.com and tell them thanks for supporting the show on Twitter where they're at CodeShip. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And you talked a lot about the internals, which I think can be kind of tricky to discover in Python. The previous show that I recorded but is not yet released is with Philip Guao, mm-hmm. all about uh, this uh university class he did and then put online on the internals of CPython, like a 10 hour series on, on like walking through CPython. And I, I just, I want to watch that. Yeah. I just want to recommend to listeners. Like if, if that kind of stuff that we were just talking about sounds a little like, oh, I'm not really sure where this is going. Like mm-hmm. watch Phillips videos, right? I'll, maybe I'll yeah. put them in the links here. Cause it'll all of a sudden click together and like, Oh, I see exactly. And, and mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about the same kinds of things that he does by importing the disk, the disassembly module, the dis module, and disassembling functions and actually looking at what it is you're talking about to see what's really happening. Yeah, I the the thing is, I'm I'm not uh, to be honest, I'm not an authority on the internals of the of, of of Python. But sometimes I was curious about some things and I I, I went to look for it, 
But uh, I also want to tell your listeners that the book is not about that kind of thing. It has some moments that has these kinds of look into, you know, under the, the covers. But most of the time it's not like that. It's something that I enjoy, but I, I, I also found it challenging to read the, the, the source code for, for C Python. So, uh, I would love to see Python developing, uh, here's an, a, a wish that I have. Uh, I would love to see sometime in the future, perhaps, a, a Python interpreter written in Go. Because Go, Go is much more readable than C. It's simpler also, in the, the syntax is simpler. But it has the problem of concurrency resolved in a very good way, and it would be awesome to see a Python interpreter written in Go. It would make it also much easier to understand what's going on. Yeah, how about something, a future Python, that the the runtime parts are easier to read because it's Go, and it doesn't have the global interpreter lock. Exactly. Maybe because you can somehow resolve that with simpler threading models in Go. Yeah, it's important to... Since we, since you mentioned the global, global interpreter lock, you know the the Python and the Iron Python implementations of Python don't have it because they already can count on an underlying implementation of objects and threads that is thread safe. And so it's something this is something that happens with C Python and also with PyPI. But Iron Python and Jyton don't have the global interpreter lock. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so basically there's two cases of this is a possible thing. It's just we're not there yet, right? Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on maybe to like the array section and the, the sequences. Uh, you, you did some really interesting things there, a lot of which was kind of familiar like to me like list comprehensions and generate expressions uh -huh. those those are yeah you know if you've been doing python for a while make a lot of sense but then you also have like little gems in there like one of them that really stuck with me is said um basically if you implement the iter method mm -hmm. you can automatically do iteration but if the the collection you have doesn't have a, a dunder contains then any sort of is check will actually be a sequential scan uh, an in, in check, not is. Yeah. Oh, sorry. In, yes, of course. Yes, an in yeah. check. So uh -huh. if you say object in sequence, mm -hmm. and it mm -hmm. does it, it implements iteration, but not the contains. All of a sudden, it can still answer the question, but it's a huge performance problem potentially. Yeah, yeah, and and that's because if you look on uh, right at the second page of chapter two, there's a diagram of the of the uh, mutable sequence and sequence. ABCs and then container iterable in size. And so they, those ABCs pretty much define the, the standard API for mutable sequences. And in the sequence ABC, contains is a concrete method. So even though that's a, an abstract class, the only abstract method in it is dunder get item. And, but dunder contains is already implemented. And the way it's implemented is by just use, using iteration. Yeah, uh, this is one thing that I uh, that uh, one thing that makes me really like Python is the fact that as a teacher, I found it easier to explain over the years. Although it has also grown more features that take a lot of time to explain, but for 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 a certain specific set of features, uh, for instance, if you're talking about sequences, these days it's easier to talk about sequences I think than it was before. 
because although there is more content, you have to talk about comprehensions and so on, the basic concept of a sequence was not very well defined earlier in the language because there were no ABCs. In the, in the, in the documentation you read about, oh, so, so this is, this expects a sequence and that's, but there was no strict definition of, of what the <laughs> sequence was. After a while. It's like a vague playing, concept of, well, a sequence is kind of these, yeah, what does that actually mean precisely? Exactly. Right? Sub, yeah, exactly. So people who were comfortable with the language intuitively knew what a sequence was. People who knew about the implementation of the language in C knew exactly what a sequence was, but in a way that was very complicated to convey. <laughs> and now with the introduction with the ABCs, it's easier because you can say, no, so here, here's what a sequence is. A sequence has to have a way of, uh, is a container, an, an iterable sized container. So it has to be a way to, there's gotta be a way to get the len to iterate over it and to determine whether something is or, or is not in it. And then it has to have a, you know, so there's a definition that people can look up in the, in the documentation. And in the book, I, 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 I drew some UML diagrams, which I also think it's, uh, they make it easier to see the relationship between those ABCs because in the documentation, there is no diagram. So it's all, it's all. Um, yeah. Those pictures are really nice. I like them. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one thing I thought was really helpful and I think probably I learned a decent amount from it was when you're talking about this whole thing on data structures, mm -hmm. you have this part that's called that you entitled, you know, when a list is not the answer. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like li you can almost always use a list for everything and it does have a, you know, effectively a, a pop method and, you know, push, push is just append and, and things like that. Right. So, but it's maybe not the best choice for that. So, you, you talk about things like arrays yeah, and exactly. the DQ class or, or sequence for double-ended queues. And I thought that was really interesting. So maybe do you want to just talk quickly about your message there? Yeah, so that was the idea because it's something that I, I've always, I've uh, not always, but I've uh, already caught myself doing in the past was to uh, use a list when I should be using an array. An array is easy. It was really easy to use. And it's much more uh, efficient in terms of memory and also in terms of uh, execution because the it's a packed data structure where where one number is right after the other. And another yeah, thing it is, might be worth uh, just like expanding uh -huh. on that just a, a little bit, you know, because uh -huh. in normal Python, even a number, if I say x equals 7, that allocates mm -hmm. under you know, down in the runtime in object, like a full on object, which has all sorts of additional information. And it's a pointer out to that thing. Exactly. Whereas array allocates, you know, literally four bytes for ints or whatever in a huge long array. Right. Exactly. That's because that, yeah, exactly. That's, that's why when you create a, I think the, the first stumbling block to, to create an array is that you have to look up the, in the documentation, because when you create an array, you have to write this type code that tells the array what are the the size of the of the numbers that are going to the size and the type of the numbers that are going to be there because you can also have an array of floats right so you have to look up in the documentation to remember what are what are the the letters that you use to specify the the numeric type that goes into the array but then when you do that you're all set uh, when, one thing that I try to do, like for instance, in, in the discussion about arrays, there is that, and there's other places, is to compare, 
to I, I wrote those tables with uh, like all the methods and operations of a list and array. And so you can just briefly look and realize that what the difference is. Oh, here's something that I can do with an array that I cannot do with a list or vice versa, right? So uh, that's why I, I decided to add those tables because there's a lot of functionality and I wanted to pretty much graphically show people that they're almost the same, but there are some differences. And, and when you look at the tables, it's easy to tell really quickly what the differences are. Yeah, it was really helpful for me. So I appreciate that you added that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of coming up towards the end of the show. Maybe you want to touch on just a couple more points that you you think are uh, important parts of the book that maybe I haven't gotten to. Yeah. So uh, basically, the book is divided in six parts, right? We talked about the, the part one, which is just one chapter where I present uh, the data model in a very introductory way. But the idea of the data model and and demonstrate how useful it is with the card deck example and then the there's a, a vector class with operators. Anyway, and then the second part is data structures, the part that the part that we were talking about. The, that part has uh, a chapter. Long, the, the, I think the longest chapters in the book are there. The the one about all the sequence types, the one about dictionaries and sets, and the one about uh, text versus bytes. About the, the the text versus bytes chapter, I was very happy because one of my favorite uh, programming book authors, uh, Bruce Eckel, who wrote the famous uh, Thinking in Java book, he's to, these days he's doing some Scala writing, but also he's, he, he loves Python, and he was reading my book and he said that my uh, chapter about uh, text versus bytes, which covers Unicode, what Unicode means, and all the different ways of converting Unicode from and to bytes, he thought they were very uh, useful for him. Anyway, so this the, the data structures part of the book. Then part three is about functions as objects. I decided to introduce that before classes, also because I think it's a Pythonic way of thinking. You, we start by by doing by coding stuff in functions, and we usually only create classes when we realize that just plain functions won't do. Right? Maybe some maybe some data needs to come along with those functions or something, right? Exactly, exactly. If, if you're if you were trained in, in Java, you are tra- you know trained to do everything in classes because that's the way, only way to do it. So that's why I decided in the book to to give a total explanation of uh, functions and design patterns using functions, how you can simplify some design patterns by getting rid of, of classes and just using functions. And then uh, I wrap up with decorators and closures. And then the uh, part, five, part four is about uh, object-oriented programming. It starts with uh, an explanation of how references work and how the whole thing about mutability works. And then I uh, give some examples of implementing what I call Pythonic objects, which are uh, first a, a vector class, uh, a 2D vector class, and then a, a two-dimensional vector class, and then a multi-dimensional vector class. And those examples are excuses to show the use of uh, many special methods in practice. I thought I thought your comment on how um, you don't like to call the Dunder methods magic magic methods but special methods it was interesting you're like there's nothing magic about these this is how you do exactly. it exactly <laughs> exactly 
Exactly. And the thing is, when you, when you call something magical, you're saying, okay, so this is not for mere mortals. But that's exactly the opposite. Like I was saying before about uh, the criticism that I was... Uh, 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 that I, I was criticizing Java and Go because of the fact that they, that it has some data structures that are magical in the sense that you cannot really emulate them in your own code. And so, exactly. Anyway, I, so the, this, this is the part of the book where I explain how to do that. And also there is, uh, some disc discussions about, uh, the use of interfaces and something that's a, a first and I'm very proud that Alex Martelli, who was a, one of the reviewers of the book, one of the tech reviewers of the book, uh, uh, wrote an essay ex uh, introducing, uh, after he introduced duck typing, at least the, the Wikipedia credits him with uh, the creation of, or, or at least with the first use of the expression duck typing in the context of discussion, discu discussing programming languages. Alex Martelli now in in invented the concept of uh, uh, goose typing. Goose typing, okay. What <laughs> yes. is goose typing? Uh, so, uh, goose typing is a variation of duck typing where you have some uh, type hints. This new feature of Python three point five, but not it doesn't require actually the new feature, the, the type hints. It, 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 the, the idea is to use ABCs uh, as a way to to specify types. But here's the thing: Python uses ABCs in a way that's very uh, Influenced by the by its origins uh, as a dynamic typed language with duck typing, and the, the 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 main reason for that is that it allows you to actually create a class that does not inherit from an ABC, but then you register it as a as a virtual subclass of that ABC. So you're actually promising, I do implement that thing. I, although I do not inherit from it, I do implement that. And you can actually do that after the fact, for instance, maybe because it's a third-party library that implements some, some something that, I, that you look at it and say, hey, this actually looks like a sequence and it would be useful in my code to be able to ask if that's a sequence and to have the answer yes. So in your own code, you can affirm that this other data structure that somebody else did is in fact a virtual subclass of, of a sequence. So this is a facility that Python has with the, the way the ABCs were implemented. And there's this register method uh, of ABCs that allow you to register some other type as a virtual subtype of this type. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. So that's the idea of the of uh, goose typing. It's, an, it's an, a different kind of waterfall, <laughs> but it's related to ducks in some way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. And then there is a... This, a chapter about inheritance where I discuss the, the uh, multiple inheritance, which, which again, again is something that a lot of people don't have contact with because many of all languages don't implement that. Uh, and then there's the chapter about control flow. This was the hardest chapter for me to do. Uh, and there was a because, uh, basically because uh, the async IO was very new, still very new. Yeah, you have a lot of stuff on on basically parallelism or async here. You've got concurrency with async IO, concurrency with futures. What what's the story with the futures part? Yeah, so the thing is, uh, there is a module called concurrent futures, right? Then this this module actually works with uh, uh, threads and processes under the covers. 
So, uh, but uh, it was the first uh, module in the the first package in the Python standard library that implemented that, this idea of futures, which is something that is gaining a lot of currency in other languages as well. So, futures are uh, basically objects that represent a pending computation. So, the idea is that when you submit to sub, some concurrent API a task to be done, uh, usually you submit, please run this function, right? So, the API immediately and in a non-blocking way returns to you a, a, a future that represents that pending computation. And then you can query this this future to know whether the, the thing that you asked to be done is actually done or not. And when it's done, you can actually get the result from the future as well. And another thing that the future does is that, that is extremely useful whenever you are uh, doing async work or threaded work is that it encapsulates the some exception that was raised when the system was running that function that you asked it to run. And this is really important because what happens is if, when when you're running code asynchronously and this, an exception happens, it, it's happening in another context, right? So how do you catch it? And it's really interesting. The way it works is the, the future object catches it and stores it for you. And then later when you actually go look at the future object, and for instance, if you request the result from the future, if instead of a result, a, a, an exception was raised, the exception is raised at this point in your program. So it teleports in a way, the the exception that happened in the, this other context that you have where you have no control to a context where you actually either, you know, you want to look at the result of the computation, but actually there was an exception, and this is where the exception is raised, and you you get to handle it. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Because normally you think of the exception as going up the call stack. Yeah, exactly. Until somebody catches it, but on the other thread that you didn't start or manage, right, that's not, not what you need. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. And then the last section you have is just on uh, metaprogramming, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the metaprogramming part is uh, about uh, how attributes actually work in Python. So I start with some simple examples using the Dunder get after uh, special method, for example, that allows you to emulate a, uh, like a virtual attribute. And I use it, uh, I have a real data, a data stream from OSCON last year that had the, all the talks. So they had a few thousand re uh, records in JSON format, and I use I, I, I implement a few classes to make it easy to navigate through this OSCON data, and then <clears throat> uh, what else? Then I, I I talk about properties, in the, and and then I go to the next chapter is about descriptors, which is the infrastructure for properties, and then I I, dis I develop an example. Uh, that was that actually evolved from a talk that I gave at PyCon in 2013 in, in Santa Clara. Uh, it was called Encapsulation with Descriptors, the talk. But the, the in the chapter, I can spend much more than 45 minutes with that. Of course. Or 30 minutes, actually, it was. Anyway, and the last chapter is about class metaprogramming. And uh, I didn't call it metaclasses because uh, there's an... Uh, although metaclasses is the most uh, famous way of doing metaprogramming with classes in Python and other languages that allow it. We also we are we now have a, an easier way of doing metaprogramming with classes, which is using class decorators. 
So then I show some examples with that and, and a real meta class. And that's, that, uh, wraps up the book. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm looking forward to digging into. If I have a few more days, you know, especially the concurrency looks, looks really interesting. So yeah, yeah I, congratulations on your book. It's, it's very well done and people are going to get a lot out of it. Thanks a lot. Let me just mention one thing that I'm proud of uh, in the concurrency uh, part of the book, and actually the control flow part. In the, in the coroutines uh, chapter, I wanted to show people coroutines used in an, in an interesting way, which was not linked to asynchronous programming, which is the main use case for them these days. And so I decided to implement this uh, discrete event simulation of taxi cabs. And so this is something that uh, an example that I'm, I'm proud of that I came up with this example that shows and gives you when you run the simulation, if you actually run the script, it gives you an, an, an intuition of how actually you can use coroutines to manage many things happening at the same time. In the, in the example, they are uh, cab trips, uh, different cabs that are on the street catching uh, passengers and dropping off chap, uh, passengers, and so. But it doesn't involve an event loop, but it's a simulation. And it's, so there's a very simple scheduler implemented in about 10 lines of Python and makes, makes all those cabs run. And actually the cabs are implemented as coroutines. So that sounds really cool. I definitely want to check that out. So before I let you go, there's uh, two questions I always ask my guests on the way out the door. First one is, what's your favorite code editor? Uh, I use Sublime Text. Uh, Sublime, that's a good one. Yeah, although my my part, uh, I, I have a partner in my training company that uses PyCharm, and sometimes I get, I, I think of moving to PyCharm, but you get sucked in Sublime there. Sublime <laughs> is, yeah, exactly. It's, I'm 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 I prob- I'm not an IDE person. Maybe I, someday I will be, but now I prefer simpler things, and I'm very happy with Sublime Text. Yeah, excellent. And the other question is, uh, what's your favorite PyPI package? You know, there's all these different things out there, sixty thousand plus, whatever. And yeah, you know, a lot. There's just so much to raise people awareness of. So, what's your your top list? Well, I th- requests. It's probably a common answer. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Uh, other, other, other people have maybe given you this answer, but I think it's really cool, and I actually use it in the book. It's one of the few external lib- uh, libraries that I use, even though there is a library that does pretty much the same in the standard library. And I use it because it's much simpler, but also because it runs the same on Python 2 and Python 3. The, the, uh, our HTTP client functionality in the standard library has always been not very good, and because it's not very been very good, it's been uh, changed a lot in Python three without getting much better, but enough to become incompatible. <laughs> Lovely. So, so there's a lot of reason. There's a, so it's so I think requests. If you want to write a an HTTP client, is something that you really have to go for because then you know, your code will be will, will be easier, nicer, and it will run in Python 2 and Python 3 at the same time. Yeah. The only thing that I wish requests had, and it doesn't, is support for asynchronous requests. One of the things that you learn in my book uh, is that you can actually do very effective network code in Python despite the GUI with threads because of the fact that every single 
function in the standard library of Python that does blocking I.O. releases the GUI. So if you test it, if you run it, you, you will see it. Actually, uh, you know, except in very, extre very extreme cases, the performance of threaded applications and asynchronous applications in Python is pretty much the same. So you can use requests with threads for doing very fast uh, uh, HTTP clients. Yeah, that's great, because most of you are blocked waiting on the network anyway, right? Exactly, exactly. Cool. Yeah, we had Kenneth Wright on the show, uh, the sixth episode, and we talked a lot about, about requests. That was very cool. Yeah, I'm very, I, I was very glad. I think Kenneth, uh, uh, I don't know, Kenneth, uh, gave some manifestation that was positive about my book on Twitter. Maybe he favored some, somebody else's tweet that was positive about my book, but I was very proud of that because he's really a, uh, an example of a, a guy who can do things in a very Pythonic way. If you want to learn what, what Pythonic is, study Kenneth's code. Yeah, he's very good at creating APIs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, any final shout-outs or call-to-actions? Before we go, <laughs> people should go read your book. They should go check out your book, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was yeah, uh, it, it was a, a huge investment for me. I, I don't know if most of your readers know, but it's quite, it's pretty impossible to make a living writing books, right? Uh, you have to be. It's sort of like uh, make a living. How to, how to make a living uh, playing guitar? <laughs> yes. There's you know there's about very few people in the world that do it uh, that manage that. Anyway, so I have to recover the investment in time that was huge. I spent uh, 18 months writing this book, and the second half of that time was full-time doing it because my editor started complaining that, that it was, uh, you know, I get, uh, I was not feeling my... <laughs> you, you weren't on the deadline. My schedule. Needed, yeah. <laughs> I was not in the schedule, yes. So, so <laughs> there were a, a couple of postponements, but then she noticed that I was really writing a lot. The, the book grew. It started as a project for a uh, three to 400 pages book. But I'm, I'm really happy with the result. I'm really uh, proud and I'm really happy uh, with the chance that I had to work with Megan Blanchett, my editor at O'Reilly. She was awesome. And the support that I had from the technical editors, uh, Alex Martelli, Anna Havenscroft, Leonardo Rochael, and Leonard Regebro, and Victor Stinner, who was a special guest tech editor for the Asyncio chapter. They were awesome. And it's really been a great experience, and I'm really happy to see how people are enjoying the book. And yeah, it's quite an investment, but uh, I hope hopefully it pays off for you because it, it's definitely yeah. good work. Yes, thanks a lot. Yeah, you're welcome, Luciano. Thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Luciano Romalo, and this episode has been sponsored by Hired and Coachip. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Hired wants to help you find your next big thing. Visit Hired.com slash TalkPython to me to get five or more offers with salary and equity presented right up front and a special listener signing bonus of $4,000. CodeChip wants you to always keep shipping. Check them out at CodeChip.com and thank them on Twitter via at CodeChip. Don't forget the discount code for listeners. It's easy. TalkPython, all caps, no spaces. You can find the links from today's show at TalkPython.fm slash episodes slash show slash 24. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes and direct RSS feeds in the footer of the website. 
Our theme music is Developers, Developers, Developers by Corey Smith, who goes by Smix. You can hear the entire song at talkpython.fm slash home slash music. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks for listening. Smix takes out of here. Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can feel within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back.